This is Unstructured. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured. Unstructured is a chat with people who are changing the world around them through teaching, creating, or just living as an example. And when meeting folks, we can learn from each other, be inspired, and maybe even make a new friend together. Hey, everyone. Brand new guest today. This is Michael Woodenberg. I hope I'm saying the name correctly. Sounds good. All right. Won't hold you to the original Dutch. Oh, well, then we'd be completely lost. Michael is a former Army veteran and currently works for a defense contractor where he's putting in place different ideas and concepts to streamline productivity and work with people, attitudes, and team building, I believe. Pretty close. I'll work with that. Oh, please enlighten me. No, it's um I mean it's it's a great it's a great little synopsis on that. Um I work out of uh organization called Operations Research. Um and if anybody feels the need to to wiki that, there's a great article on Wikipedia on the topic. It really kind of started off at uh World War Two. Um if everyone's familiar with the movie Dunkirk that just came out. Mm-hmm. I don't know, have you seen that one? I have. Okay, so they left like nine divisions worth of material in the Netherlands and Belgium when they came back. They basically just brought people. And so they had this huge issue of trying to figure out how do we get all of our warfighting force back up to speed while getting bombed and defending the country from the German invasion. So uh, operations research started off kind of a heavy statistics based, but um, they call it the science of better. And it was really the great grandparent of everything that ended up evolving into uh, Toyota Lean or Six Sigma or any of these different continuous improvement methodologies. Um, There's a branch of engineering called industrial engineering that actually came from operations research. So it's actually kind of fascinating, the history of it. So I work out of operations research and I apply those concepts into the business Mm-hmm. where really we have what we call functions and, and product lines. And so the functions are the, a lot of the groups that actually end up doing the work, whereas the product lines end up being the programmatics of it all. And uh, I end up focusing on the functions. How do we get these people to be, become more efficient and more aligned, more collaborative, more innovative um, in their day-to-day business? So I work in that realm pretty much every day. So it's, it's funny because we say it's the, uh, the science of better, it's process optimization. But what I find 90% of the time, what I do is behavior optimization. Very cool. So I interviewed um, Adam Hansen. He came out on an earlier episode. And it sounds to me like you guys may be on the same path with just different points. Like he may jump on the train or start the train out at stop A on, hey, how do we get this thing off the ground? And you are later down the line saying, hey, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And um, helping focus, improve, and change the structure. It was interesting. I found that uh, that that episode to be fantastic um, because w- when we talk about innovation, it's off, often kind of a an odd term to uh, to work with because innovation in my realm deals a lot with like process optimization and technology, um, and I was always a little kind of confused with exactly what Adam was uh, was kind of angling at in some ways because it didn't resonate perfectly. Um, but when he explained that he was focused on on marketing predominantly, um, what you said is, is actually very true is that he kind of focuses on, okay, what could we do? Where could we go? 
And then a lot of those things come in. I don't think it's a further up the train stop or, or, or further down. It's just a different focus and a different angle on what we'd call innovation. Um, so what what I've found myself focusing on is because I've tried to drive for that innovation at, at, at my company is fundamentally I find that having the strong organization underneath it kind of goes back to my time in the army, right? You you can have all the best strategies and best ideas for how to win the war in the world, but if you actually don't have the discipline, as Patton used to say, if I can't trust you to buckle your chin strap, how can I trust you to win the war? And there's an element of truth to that. And it's not that the chin strap was going to be the key performance indicator of whether or not you're going to win the war, but the chin strap was actually a key identifier of what sort of discipline that that patent could expect from the rest of your behaviors. Mm. And so what I find a lot when I talk about behavior optimization is um, Jordan Peterson mentions this, clean your room. If you can execute the task that you have appropriately, then we can talk about innovating it. I have people come up all the time. Hey, Mike, 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 I want to automate this process. And my first question is, are you following the process that you do have? Mm-hmm. Because one, you probably don't want me to automate the, the, the established process if you're not following it. But two, I'm not going to automate the deviant process because it's not documented and it, it's not held accountable to, if that makes any sense. Sure. So you're, you're actually, um, are you also looking at the process itself saying, well, why are you doing steps two and four when you could just do a single step here, incorporate it in three or... Oh, yep. Or the famous uh, thing of moving the uh, electrical equipment over, the electricity over in the uh, factory so it's closer by. Stuff like oh, that. absolutely, absolutely. So what you're talking about is what we call uh, valley stream mapping or uh, more globally what, what's known as the theory constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, so really focusing on sometimes we have something that we think is a problem. This is what the theory constraints looks at. We think this is a problem. Like I don't like my task. I want to improve my task. And yet when we step back a little bit and put a little more of a systems perspective on it, what we find is your task is actually okay. It's, you know, my task that needs to be optimized because I'm actually the bottleneck. And then value stream mapping takes a look at the whole flow of what we call the value, whatever that ends up being and says to what, to your point, you know, where's my where's my classic waste like what you're talking about is probably movement of either the person or the machine when you talk about the uh when you talk about putting the electrical outlet closer right okay that all makes sense that's really fascinating stuff it also makes me think of um they have a office in uh england dealing with athletics and it's Mm -hmm. called something like the office of incremental returns or something very cool because it's saying just they're looking for tiny tiny yep. improvements and that over these small improvements they for example turned into you know tour de france winners right just by little here little there little here little there just the shaving and refining yep. incremental continuous improvement is i think the term that we would apply there huh. i think you have a guest behind you oh we do we have uh if you hear the noise in the background i I was debating I can't kick my kids out of the house, so we uh, it's part of my <laughs> life, so we uh, we enjoy it and we embrace it, and they're just having fun this morning. So that's your innovation contribution to the world. Yeah, that's my innovation contribution. Put a lot of time and training and practice into that one. <laughs> so now you're originally from Michigan, I understand? I am from Michigan, a small town called Atlanta, Michigan, um, about an hour south of the bridge. 
which uh, I guess I'm not speaking to someone from Michigan. Correct. Uh, the bridge is the Mackinac Bridge, which used to be the longest suspension bridge in the world. Um, it's five miles long, but it connects the upper and lower peninsula. So there's uh, a lot of little idioms within uh, Michigan. So an hour south of the bridge uh, between Gaylord and Alpena, a little tiny town, 1,200 people, mostly retirees and uh, very low income. Hmm. And uh, give you an example, my graduating class was 33 people. Wow. So it was tiny. It was fantastic. Was it a one-room schoolhouse? <laughs> no, it was a it was a regular school. I mean, it was 150. We're class D, um, so terrible at all sports, but tried hard in all of them. Did you play sports? I ran cross country, uh, track, and I played basketball for a few years. Um, being six six, by the time I was 15, was was helpful. However, mm-hmm. small town politics. I ended up. Uh, quitting in the middle of my junior year and picking up snowboarding instead, which was the best decision of my life. Okay. And it, so, were you competitive in snowboarding or, or professional? I never did. Well, I never did compete in snowboarding. It was just a lot of fun. It actually got me a job when I went to college working at the ski hill. And then uh, I, I instructed, so I taught other people how to snowboard. So it's a good time. All that in Michigan? Yeah, all that in Michigan. That's uh, up in Houghton, Michigan, which is up in the UP. Went to Michigan Tech University. Cool. And from there, um, what was your degree? So at a heavily technology and engineering focused school, I started off as computer science for two years and then transitioned to uh, management information systems, which is under their school of business. Mm -hmm. So I was the uh, odd man out as the uh, one of the few business majors at an engineering school. Hmm, Interesting. That was uh, Michigan Technological University. Yep. Okay. Way up in the, uh, about as far north as you can go in Michigan. It's surrounded by Lake Superior. It's got some of the most amazing outdoors stuff. It doesn't have the best necessarily of anything, but it has absolutely everything within about five to 15 minutes of your house. Cool. What was that like? It was amazing. I mean, rock climbing, ice climbing, um, if you're familiar with you know climbing up waterfalls in the wintertime, uh, we, we would get on average about 300 inches of snow a year. So snowshoeing, skiing, um, snowboarding, obviously. And then uh, and then we have some of the most amazing mountain biking trails. I will say we probably have some of the best mountain biking trails in the United States up there, up in Copper Harbor and then in Houghton. And so I, I was uh, there and participated in cutting in a lot of those trails and their origins. So it's kind of fun to see it develop uh, since I've been gone. That's really cool. I got to back up, though, one second. Climbing up waterfalls in the middle of the winter doesn't seem like the uh, smartest path to comfort imaginable. It's actually, it's actually, um, well, there's stories, but there's stories about everything. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun because so the waterfall freezes all the way around the waterfall. Oh, okay. And then the center, the center ends up f- flowing, but you've got you know one to two inches worth of ice. And it's frozen so hard that the, you'll, uh, you have these big ice picks. You've probably seen in the movies, like the different ones, like Ascenting Everest or whatever. So you use those ice picks and crampons on your feet. And then you have these screws that you'll screw in that you'll hook your rope up to. So you lead climb up. Um, sometimes you'll set up a top rope if you, if you need to rappel down the face or anything. So um, the good hard ice is one where you get your pick in it. And your pick has only got about a quarter inch of bite on the ice and you're using that to hold your entire body weight as you're pulling yourself up 
Yeah, um, I'll hold off on that. <laughs> yeah, right? That is. So one of the funnier ones was climbing. It was uh, earlier. It was probably a little late for the climb, and it was on a waterfall that had what we call soft ice, so you'd send the pick in about six inches. Hmm. Um, but I'm trying to get a good hold. It's given out, and I give a good hit. And this sheet of ice tips into the shaft of the waterfall. Mm. So I'm standing there in the waterfall. Now, instead of pouring down the cone or the tube in the middle, now it's hitting this deflection and shooting the water straight out of my face while I'm attached to the rope. And I'm just getting absolutely drenched. Luckily, it was probably about 45 degrees out. So like I said, it was a little warm, but we... Uh, the water yeah, wasn't still, warm. Still pretty. Oh no, the water was. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've had my breath taken away from me that that fast in my life. But yeah, so a lot of outdoor stuff um, that we did in uh, in college. Uh, it was a lot of fun. By the way, that's called burying the lead. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. From now, after um, university, did you go straight from there into the army where you are OTC and? Yeah, I went uh, went through ROTC for four years at, at Michigan Tech, uh, commissioned into field artillery, uh, which is the you know, big cannons. Mm-hmm. And from Michigan Tech, I went to officer basic training down at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And so they teach you all elements of it. It's kind of funny. You introduced me uh, to slide rules because mm-hmm. in the event of uh, you know comms outage, you can't trust the digital comms. So you're using all mm-hmm. these artillery slide rules to plot the uh you know your cannonry and then what i fell in love with there was a a term called uh fire support where you're actually out there planning all of the fires um because for field artillery basically you control everything that's not what we call a direct fire weapon so if it's not a it's not a gun or a tank round um basically it's controlled by the field artillery folks so cannons uh aircraft uh any sort of a bomb, UASs, things like that, are typically go through your fire support officer. So we plan that into the mission, and then you're out front, uh, way out in front of the uh, in front of the troops as forward observers, calling in fires. You know, in depth in a classic sort of combat. And I believe you did go to Iraq or to Afghanistan. Well, we'll back up a quick bit. We'll get oh. maybe we'll get into that in a second. There's a couple more steps. So. From officer basic, actually, it was uh, it was interesting because my uh, my wife and I met in college, and I'll weave this one in right quick. So between officer basic and going to ranger school, uh, my wife and I started you know what we what we called dating. We uh, as you might have noticed from a couple of the different forums we're on, I, I dislike uh, our American concept of dating. So my wife and I chose to to set it up like a courtship. So instead of you know I'm going to going to to ranger school i'm going to korea i'm going to iraq and it's like we don't have time to kind of dilly dally around and try and like is it time to talk about this or that Mm -hmm. so we said well let's set this up like a courtship why on earth are we even in a relationship well it's to confirm or deny whether or not we're going to be together for the rest of our lives so let's put the let's put that on the table let's have that conversation and so you know time is precious let's let's open up the conversation to anything and so we used to have this little joke. It's like, you know, ask me a question you would normally ask someone else at this time. Hmm. And so just so it's not like, ooh, is it too early to talk about kids or is it too early to talk about this? It was just like, hey, we don't, we need to get to know each other. We're already been friends for years. Let's let's oh. build this relationship. You've been, did you and grow so, up together? No, no, no. Just a couple of years in college. She was a, she was a freshman when I was a fourth year. 
Okay. Um, so I did five years at Tech, and so I was robbing the cradle at that point in time. But we didn't start officially uh, officially being together until after I had graduated. Anyway, just uh, as a side for that, because it'll come in a bit. So went to ranger school. And so our first several months of, of relationship was me sending back letters where I'm straight up hallucinating. Hmm. And so going back and reading those letters now, because they don't give you food, they don't give you sleep, they stress you physically, they stress you mentally. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to I'm trying to write letters and I'm literally falling asleep in the middle of them. There's drool stains on the paper, <laughs> um, you know, talking about hallucinating about gummy bears. It was... Uh, it was great fun. Uh, we have some so California finish. friends that hallucinate with gummy bears. Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> Just if I had a fun. couple of those while I was at Ranger School, it probably would have been a whole lot easier. But it would be the reverse. Went, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I, get straightened out. I went, yeah, right. I went through uh, through winter phase in Ranger School, so it was uh, it was brutally cold. So I still have this. I hate being cold and wet. I just absolutely despise it. So, gee, and you live in Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, right. That's the best decision of my life. (laughs) Imagine that. Yeah, right. So, we, uh, so, uh, Ranger School to Airborne School and then to Korea. And then in Korea, it was, uh, is where my wife and I actually ended up getting married. And so, we, I come back on my mid tour from Korea. We got engaged. Then a couple of months later, over her Christmas, she came out. We were, she was already planning to come out to Korea, so we said, "Well, screw it. Let's just get married now because next summer." Because she had to go back. I had to finish out my tour. She had to go back, finish out college, and then I had training and then a deployment in the in the future. Cool. What's her and degree? So in? she's got a, a double major in electrical and computer engineering. Ah. So she's the she's a smart one in the family on that. So the personalities so, are pretty, um, line up pretty well. You both in, in, in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, it makes it makes the relationship very very similar. We don't have a lot of disagreements. Um, we end up instead of internalizing our angst, we end up externalizing it. So I mean, as far as meaning, instead of internalizing it to the relationship, we externalize it to the events. Mm-hmm. So, you know, something eight, you know, something happens, we, we take a look at it instead of trying to instead of blaming the other person, um, we end up saying, OK, that was just a shitty situation. Let's uh, let's work through this. So your courtship could almost be seen as a negotiation. In a, let me chew on that one for a second. Um, I'd say less. So and I, the reason I'll pause on that one is I. We pick that to avoid the transactional nature of a lot of our relationships. Sure. So we didn't want to set it up in a transactional. We wanted it to be, I would say, not negotiation. I'd say more of an anarchy. It was the ability to develop our own personal anarchy where there's no authority. There's no rules necessarily. Like there's an agreed upon behavior attributes, but nothing that it's like, oh, your job is this, like I've negotiated that you do this or, or you do this. It was more kind of a more natural organic growth and what I would call a pure anarchy in that sense. I think it's the opposite of anarchy, actually, because you are making an agreement and not going into chaos. There is a distinct order that I hear in that you say, well, do we want kids? Yes or no. Do we believe in this? Yes or no. Do we? Right. It, anarchy is kind of like a, Chaos, just pure chaos. So, 
anything can become pure chaos. And so the interesting thing is anarchy in, in a lot of the different usage of it does actually come across as chaos. Um, and I've used it for years as pure chaos. But when you actually start studying anarchy as a political philosophy, anarchy isn't chaos. Anarchy is spontaneous order. And so it's the ability to, like our relationship, you and my relationship is a, is a perfect anarchy. There is literally no authority that brings us together. But as we've gotten to know each other, we've agreed on and we've gotten to know each other. And so there's certain things that I know, OK, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to poke on you for that. You're not going to poke on me for this. And we can work around that. Um, that's actually from a political philosophical perspective is, a, is an anarchy. Um, so if you look at the def dictionary definition of it, there's there's both of those. So I could kind of see the uh, the the I just your call perspective it, on that. I just call it respect. Not a higher level thing. Just uh, try to respect somebody else and respect their their boundaries or what they're trying to say. No, absolutely, absolutely. Um, now that's a that's a f funny one we could swing back to, but respect is uh, respect is a dangerous one in many many ways because you always have to check yourself to say, okay, um, respect kind of falls under the golden rule: do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mm -hmm. And yet, I find I. I coach my my employees all the time i said what the golden rule becomes is you expect from others what you expect from yourself so if you ever hear yourself saying well i never would have done that like don't they know how disrespectful it is to you know say something like that in this situation you always have to pump the brakes and say okay why on earth would i ever expect this other person to have that same you know experience or expectation and that's kind of uh where my wife and i came in and why the courtship kind of concept was great is most of those questions were asking more about you know less negotiation for things and more understanding of the other side of the fa facet so what uh what i might want might not be what she wants and mm -hmm. and i guess to your point can we negotiate to both be happy with that right and i i know i'm digging into it it's just it's a peculiar um description of an old-fashioned concept in terms of courtship you know courtship is been around forever and right. i'm i'm digging into try to get the details of how you define a courtship because i don't know if that's necessarily what other people would perceive it or what the traditional definition would seem to be but i could see where you fit it in yeah that's a, that's a great point now i i'll i'll specify we had a, a hybrid it was it was not you know you think of courtship as you know mom and dad and and you know extended family and everyone's there and everything else um we didn't have the luxury of that because you know i was in korea for most of it and she was at college so family's not nearby now one aspect of the courtship that we did have is because we're separated by distance there was limited physical contact so it's almost like having that you know proverbial bible between us sure um and so that actually helped in in many ways because you you're not able to just when you upset the other person you can't just give them a hug and be okay you actually have to diligently work through communicating through that issue because you literally can't one ignore it and two just give them a hug and make them feel better so it really hones up your communication skills like crazy, especially in that in that long distance type relationship. And it probably helps um, either build or 
hopefully build trust because trust is so important and such a pivotal thing when you're in a, a relationship such as that. A- absolutely. And trust in many different ways, because we were physically separated. I was in, in Korea, you know, going out on almost every weekend, to, you know, hanging out with friends, going into Seoul, partying like crazy. And she was in college, you know, going to parties and everything else. So trust on that aspect alone that, you know, we're both in different sides of the world. But then in the communication to be able to work through these issues and to, to communicate appropriately is, is insanely important. And I'll go back to the physical attribute, having that off the table, a lot of times it's really easy to ignore the hard conversations or ignore the things when you can just, you know, cuddle up and watch a movie. But when your entire time is spent being, you know, like you and I talking for an hour to two hours in a day, <laughs> and that's that's what you can do, you, you end up, it breaks down so many of those different, um, what you call it, safety blankets, if you will ways that you can avoid reality <laughs> and not build that trust just by having that physical kind of the trust our our dopamine hits had to be built off trust not physical touch let's just put it that way it, would you consider her your best friend or oh absolutely okay um and for 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 many years i think that was the pivotal point and when i decided i wanted to marry her was that i wanted to spend time talking to her more than i wanted to spend time talking to anybody else around me Cool. Now, do you consider yourself a sensitive person? Depends on who you ask. No, you said, do I consider myself a sensitive person? Yes. Um, yes, and my what I call my give a shit meter is typically pegged to zero. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I've 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 had conversations with my wife. It's like, do you think I'm actually on like the uh, the autism spectrum? Like, am I you know, a bit Asperger's? Like, trying to figure this out. And then I came across this great finding that um, called Dutch directness. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this explains so much. Like, I find it eminently offensive for someone to be indirect and kind of what I would call hiding the truth, or you know. I find it disrespectful if someone thinks that I can't actually handle the reality of a situation. Whereas on the flip side, there are a lot of people who find that incredibly disrespectful. So um, am I sensitive? Uh, definitely have honed up over the since college on my on my emotional intelligence. And part of that is recognizing that not everyone is like me. So in that sense, uh, yes, uh, in the sense that I just finished the book uh, Being Mortal. Mm-hmm. And probably every time I picked up that book, I find myself, you know, emotion welling up, like literally tears in my eyes reading it. I would say yes on that as well. So is that the answer you were looking for? Or, no, or, I'm, or did I'm, I answer your, I'm sorry, did I answer your question is what I meant to ask? Yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to learn about you. I don't, I don't expect a, a, a scripted answer of any kind. Yeah, no. Um, I think a lot of people who are listening to this may already know you from different groups, things like that. And you are pretty forceful in commentary. Yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it comes through. It's, it's precision in, in text comes across as a bit forceful. I've, and it's even, it's even interesting trying to ask questions, um, 
try not to lead the questions, perhaps. Um, but there, so there's there's a, a conversation that I had with a, with a friend of mine. We were talking about dichotomies, right? And I end up balancing. There's a concept called liminality that we went into into a deeper conversation on. It's kind of bridging these things where it's like, you know, A or B, and I'm like, A, B. Like, I'm actually kind of span in, in both of those. And so there's some interesting dichotomies that you have to balance um, that might reduce what, what appears to be a sensitivity. For example, from the Army, I took f- from that the two major, major tenets. One, my decisions have life and death consequences. Mm-hmm. And two, my soldiers are armed and know how to deal with bad leadership. <laughs> and so as a leader, how do I balance that? Because I literally have to get these these soldiers to go kick in the door in the face of the enemy, mm-hmm. right? So in a way, my give a shit meter has to be on zero mm-hmm. because I'm actually <clears throat> giving you orders that have life and death consequences. Now, I part of that, that aspect isn't just go do this because you have to. Is mm-hmm. I literally have to analyze it from every angle to say, how do I avoid those death consequences as much as absolutely possible in my decision making so that, you know, I, I can I can get them to continue to continue the fight. Well, a lot of and that then, is basic training, isn't it? Where the basic principle is they make you do stupid, ridiculous stuff all the time simply because then you blindly follow orders. Why? So they can say duck and you just duck. You don't go why? Boom, and die. So I think that's a I mean, you were you went through basic training um at a different day and age, I think. Um, and I think some people definitely take that view. I don't. Um, someone once asked me, like, the one thing I dislike more than a uh, than people giving bad leadership advice is people coaching me on what they think, like, uh, or civilians coaching me on what they think the army was like. Mm-hmm. So I had a situation where the person's like, well, I'm sure that there were times where they just gave you orders and they just expected you to follow them and they didn't tell you why. And I paused for a second. I'm like, okay, my own personal view on that is I, as often as possible, tell my soldiers why, because that way, if I end up dying, they know what they need to do and why they need to do it. So the mission can be successful. And that's, there's an interesting aside there is that, uh, really analyzing the, the philosophy of the combat leader is that I have to leave my ego alone. Because it can't, the mission cannot be successful solely on the merits of Michael Woodenberg. Mm-hmm. It has to be successful because of the team. And so, literally, I have to design and train and execute in a way that if I took a bullet in the face, the mission wouldn't actually hiccup at all. Sure. And I meant at a point of time in the Army in terms of basic right. training. They tear you down there and then build you up. You learn why is a lot later when you're actually in the mission, in the field, things like that. But True. getting the initial discipline of doing silly stuff is relevant, and it's also good for team building. Now, I would say, I would say to tie into that, what, what, what's important for basic training is they take a whole bunch of people from all different aspects, walks of life, backgrounds, you know, socioeconomic classes, uh, you know, ethnic groups, everything else, and they, and they break those into... Uh, they break all of those paradigms down. They break you down to the soldier. Mm-hmm. And then from the soldier, then they build you, in, like you said, into that discipline to execute these tasks to, to, to standard. And then then they start adding elements of that, of who you are back into that. Right. It's kind of like and that so, callback um, from Patton you said earlier. 
Yeah. Yeah, get the jet, get the chin strap buckled on a on a regular basis, and then then we can let you have your personality back. Mm-hmm. But uh, so yeah, so I always took the the method that I would tell my soldiers why. So going back to that 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 one coworker of mine who was like, "Oh, I'm sure they gave you tasks forever telling you why." I was like, "Let me let me let me pause on that one for a second. Like, I analyzing the situation. I'm like, you know, the five paragraph operations order in the, in the U.S. Army has Situation, mission, execution, command signal, service, and support. Now, there's only two things that you need out of that to execute a mission. You need the mission statement, which contains a why, and you need the first paragraph of the execution section, which is commander's intent, which is why. So the only two things I need out of the entire operations order in order to execute is who, what, when, where, why, and then doubly why. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of interesting is... Um, I need my soldiers to ask why and to know why, because that way that kind of balances those life and death consequences. Because I'd also tell them that, you know, I have two eyes, two ears, one brain. Um, I can't know all, see all, or be all. So I need good intel from my team at all times. I, don't just execute my order. Like the death of a leader is willful compliance. Sure. Sure. I give you an order. You do exactly what I say. That means that that's the that's that second part. My soldiers are armed and know how to deal with bad leadership. It's not just the proverbial you know bullet in the butt. That's also uh, one of the fastest deaths is willful compliance. Well, I used to be stationed at Fort Irwin, California, and mm-hmm. we were the op four. Yep. And I don't think we ever lost, at least not while I was in. And part of the right. reasons we did not run like the Soviet. Supposedly, we use Soviet tactics, but I learned early on in Op 4 training that Soviet tactics, while uh, are they're perfect on paper and they look great, they break down when faced with the uh, challenges. Like Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. Yep. Well, that's what happens with the Soviet. They have such a tight structure that they would have to always reiterate the command from above, going all the way up the chain. So they could yep. never think on their own. Yep. Whereas you're in a more cellular type of situation with a company, <clears throat> platoon, squad. Mm-hmm. Here's the overall idea. We need to do this. Uh, I don't right. really care how you get there. Yep. No, and that's a, that's a great point, is that the, the structure of the, of the Army is it's kind of interesting. Um, I love going after big, challenging tasks, but I recognize that to do that, I need to have the discipline underneath. And it's kind of the interesting, the interesting aspect of the the discipline gives me agility. Mm-hmm. And people kind of look at me and say, "Well, discipline kind of it's kind of like one of those dichotomies. Like, what is anarchy? Is anarchy actually spontaneous order or pure chaos?" Well. Depending on your usage, it can actually be both. But the, I, I like the spontaneous order conversation. But with the uh, with the conversation on on agility and discipline, I always use the analogy of go run a NFL agility course. Like you watch the spring training or whatever it is, or the the pre draft stuff, and you watch these these athletes go through that, and then say, okay, Eric, you go do that agility course. Mm-hmm. Well, you're going to, you and I both are going to look kind of like a fool, even though we're actually in pretty good physical, physical shape for our ages, because we don't have the discipline in actually running the agility course. Right. 
Um, now, if we trained it, if we ran it, if we did the high steps, if we did the uh, the you know the twists and, and turns and everything else, we'd become better. But to just go run it cold, we're more likely to injure ourselves than not. Oh, absolutely. And so these NFL players have an insane amount of discipline, which allows them to actually be physically agile. And so in the military sense, it's the same thing. I need to know that if you're my squad leader and I tell you to go flank right, I need to know that you're going to follow the task conditions and standards for 90% of the, uh, the execution. You're going to be following your individual movement techniques. You're going to be using your, you know, your, your weapon control. You're going to be, you know, shooting appropriately. You're not just going to be blasting your ammo out and going black and having to be pulled off. You're going to be, you know, using discipline all the way through. Because that allows me then to look for only certain key performance indicators. So I look up and I can tell immediately whether or not you're good or in trouble just based off of flow and things like that, because I know you're doing all the basics. And then if you get pinned down, that gives me, you have the discipline to actually call me up and say, hey, Woodenberg, I'm stuck. You know, I can't get through. And I say, okay, you set into the support by fire position. I'm going to flank the Bravo team to the, to the left. And then we kind of balance, we do this dance back and forth as we go and execute that. So you're not running into a meat grinder just because I told you to. It's the discipline in many different layers so that we actually have the agility in the execution to achieve uh, maximum flexibility and, and success. And do you feel more comfortable in that kind of environment? You mean getting shot at in chaos? No, the um, discipline and structure. Because Never mind the um, the enemy aspect of it. You're explaining the importance of it, but I think that you've internalized a lot of the principles there and perhaps feel comfortable, especially around those who have that same attitude and philosophy. You work for a defense contractor after all. Yeah, the irony of that one is they are the most chaotic and undisciplined group of people you'll ever meet in your life. Like my job is not, it's it's the, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. It feels like, you know, reading the book of, uh, uh, the book of Judges in the Bible, where every chapter is like, oh, and they went from chaos to order back to chaos because no one actually sustained it. Um, we like to we like to reward firefighters. We like to reward the heroes in my business, and that's not good for for structure. So you, the question that you asked, though, and I'll say it depends on the level of abstraction. Um, you need to be disciplined in the basics. You know, I, I don't necessarily describe like I was I was an enigma in the army because I was fly by the seat of my pants in, in many different ways because I demanded the highest degree of discipline in the basics. Like I would do things like prevent maintenance checks and services on the vehicles. I couldn't be there all day long to watch them do the maintenance on the vehicles every Monday. Mm -hmm. So I would do things like take a pebble, put it under the road wheel because they had to move the track to check track tension and mm -hmm. uh, brakes. Now, if I came back at the, in the afternoon and the rock was still under the road wheel, they obviously didn't move the track. So mm -hmm. a key performance indicator, you didn't follow, you know, you didn't, you know, clean your room. You didn't, you weren't disciplined in this. I would do things like cut lead wires because you're supposed to go check those and replace them if they're bad. Mm -hmm. uh, take the firing pin from the howitzer because you're supposed to do a functions check on your entire breach mechanism. And all of these things were just key to find out, are you actually doing the basics that are required day for day? Because then if you are, I can actually give you the least structure in the top. Mm -hmm. for and the, so as, I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. For the civilians out there, um, there's a tale about David Lee Roth and M&Ms. And everybody were 
was wondering why in the rider when Van Halen would come to town, they had a, a closet. There were to be, I believe, no green M&Ms. Yeah, no green or brown or one of those. Yeah, yeah, it was one color or another. And the whole point of it was not to be the pretentious rock star, which it went down as he was a pretentious rock star, of course. Right. But it right. actually was because there's so many moving parts with all the equipment, all the stage items, things like that. If they got the M&Ms right, they were far more likely to have paid better attention to the technical details of the yep. setup. And he'd know that, yep. yes, this is safe. If they did not yep. get it right, he would say, okay, we've got to really watch out and double check everything because this could be a dangerous place. You walk into your walk into your changing room and there's a bowl full of M&Ms and the color you don't want is in it. It's a key indicator that they weren't, they don't have the attention to discipline or the attention to detail for the discipline. So sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, no, it's a great, it's a great aside because uh, yeah, sometimes we, two military guys start talking the military. We know what we're talking about, but put it into different contexts is great for others. So yeah. Um, so, so yes and no to your question. I, I, it's important to have discipline and execution. It's important to have flexibility and execution because the best laid plans are only good until the first bullet flies. And then you really got to be on your toes and working, but I can't just let it go to chaos. Like I need, if I need flexibility to say, Hey, you know, you two have never worked together before. Go, go enter that, you know, go join me. We're going to go kick in this door. Right. I can't be like, Oh man, they've never worked together before. We're all different. No one does it the same way. I can say you two have trained the same standard for months. I could take any, any five people from my team in any configuration of five people from my team we could all execute any uh, individual task to standard because we've all been trained to the standard, which gives me the absolute most flexibility in execution, um, though it's predicated on critical focus on discipline. Do you have an example in Iraq, for example, where you served, where this broke down, where a, a small overlooked item actually led into a worse situation? So we were, we did a lot. So yeah, let me, I'm, tr- I'm trying to give sure. it a little context as well because we, we jumped a little bit. So um, in Iraq, I was stationed in Mosul, which is in the north part of Iraq. But Mosul is also the trifecta of Sunni, Shia, and Kurd. And so mm-hmm. during 07, 09, when I was there was when a lot of the insurrection was picking back up. So we had Syrian rebels coming in. We had people from Baghdad, you know, scampering up into Mosul to hide out. And then we had the Kurds um, off on the east. So it was an interesting uh, cultural dynamic. So as we were going along, there's always a lot of uh, a lot of risk to IEDs and, 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 and convoy type contact. So my job was as the as a police transition team. So I was training Iraqi police. So my team was mixed mm. of American military and American contractors, mostly like, you know, all the three letter acronym agencies who come out to help me teach, uh, teach the police and then do all their uh, other special stuff. So as far as discipline goes, um, I would get a lot of people that are like, oh, hey, you know, Soldier Jones wants to come with on the on the patrol. You know, can you take him with? It's like, okay, well, I have to trust a certain level of discipline. You know, my guy's off on mid tour. So sure, Jones can come along. And so one situation 
I always had my soldiers maintain what I called the uh, angry porcupine posture because no one screws with an angry porcupine, right? So instead of sitting up in your turret and driving along and just, oh my goodness, I got to get from point A to point B, you know, let me just, you know, look around. It was always active. Keep your weapons active, keep yourself open, you know, communicate, talk, chatter, no earbuds in your ears, no smoking, all this other stuff, you know, that, that basic discipline. Well, this soldier was not as as disciplined and didn't really get it. He's like, oh, sir, I, I've been on these missions before. I know what I'm doing. It's like, no, this is, we don't do it that way. Like, keep yourself, keep yourself active. So on the way back, we had to put him in the turret and uh, for just a rotation. And, and the guy was just, unbeknownst to me, was just not, paying attention it was just zoning out like he had done on every other mission and it ended up um not not a catastrophic event but just uh we we basically ran over an IED and luckily it didn't go off but it was an IED mm. that was in his sector and he it was pretty dang obvious and you should have seen mm. and so the rest of the team was absolutely infuriated with them not because anybody got hurt or anything but it was like you know they're upset because they liked catching the ieds before we hit them and <laughs> viewed it as a personal failure that we didn't but that was one that was a problem so we ended up you know i went and talked to his nco and i said this is this is no good we can't have this guy on the team if he's not willing to to to, to do this stuff like my team can't trust him mm -hmm. and so pulled him off on that one so nothing that was because of the my ability to actually shove people off the team like that sometimes, not that I stacked the best team, I actually had all the misfits. Mm -hmm. um, but with the misfits were actually aligned and actually became outstanding soldiers, mostly because they actually, uh, we established and enforced that discipline at the basics, if that makes sense. I'm not sure, sure. that was a, a kind of a wandering story because trying to avoid uh, avoid the the uh, classification levels of some of the stuff that we were doing sure. also tell, tell a good story, so. Well, um you actually led into something I didn't know about. You were training Iraqi police. Um, when I, I was in Cuba uh, many years back, and that had a profound influence on my life, meeting the Cubans and and learning about them and how they were culture-wise. Please set the cup down nicer next time. Uh, yeah, sorry. It had a really profound effect on me. What, what was it like meeting the Iraqis, and what were they like, and how did you um, deal with it? cultural differences, personal differences? What did you learn about them? Great question. So you, uh, I, I set my teacup down a, a little hard, but what's <laughs> interesting about that is in the teacup is Iraqi tea. Huh. And so it took me a couple of years to actually figure out exactly what it was because they call it chai. So chai comes in these little glass, these little thin glass walled, um, cups they they look like they look like shot glasses actually and so they put the tea in there um there's uh, some residue uh tea leaves and then they they have this ridiculous amount of sugar and a little tiny spoon and mm. so you just stir up as much sugar as you want so i'd always take mine give it a little half half spin to kind of spin the sugar up a little bit and then you drink the chai and i'd probably drink about five gallons of chai a day because it was amazing mm. uh, but it took me years to actually find it it's actually a, a cylon tea with cardamom so you can find it at your local Middle Eastern market, but take a take a read on that one because, uh, a different aside, I love studying the tea cultures of different uh, different groups because 
it really says so much about how they do tea or coffee. Like the the uh, drink du jour of Iraq was coffee. Because do you know where coffee's from? Um, originally, no. I Arabia or Arabic? I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so most people would say Colombia because they think Colombian coffee is South America, but it's actually from Ethiopia. Oh, sorry. And so your Arabica coffee from Ethiopia is very popular. So you have your Turkish coffees and things like that. So um, I promise this is all weaving together into a, into a story. So you asked about the Iraqi culture. And it was getting to know them through those sorts of things like their tea culture and mm-hmm. through coffee and eating and food and, uh, and, and that. And so hospitality. Hospitality, it was critically important for us as police transition because we would run with a pretty small team and we'd go out into the middle of nowhere. There was times we'd have to link up with the 19th group, which was uh, uh, National Guard Special Forces group out of Utah, Colorado. They were in our area and our, our unit couldn't actually support us going all the way out to the Syrian border, up to the Turkish border, and then back down to Missoula. So we'd go with 19th group. So there'd only be like, you know, dozen and a half of us on a patrol out in the middle of nowhere. And there's literally nothing out there, no other American presence uh, out in the Nineveh desert or anything. So you go to these police stations and you can't pull your own security. So you have to trust the Iraqis to have your back at a time when there was a lot of what we call blue on green fratricide with Iraqi police shooting American soldiers, or as you've heard often, the Afghanis uh, did the same thing. So you had to build a relationship. So, through the through the chai culture or the tea culture and then eating and just getting to know them and talk to them um you really get to build that personal level so uh, there's a kind of a a story i tell called how smoking saved my life Mm -hmm. and so when i came back from mid-tour i picked up several cartons of good american cigarettes because i found out the iraqis really liked those Mm -hmm. and so the uh I would put these cartons in each of our vehicles and I told my soldiers, I said, hey, when you get out to smoke, you know, make sure you have your situational awareness, you know, make sure you've got someone watching your back, but invite an Iraqi over and offer them a cigarette or a pack, whatever. Just start talking to them. I said, I'll leave an interpreter with you. Um, but your order, your standing order is you don't ever smoke by yourself. You only smoke with the Iraqis. Mm. And so I told him, I said, you know, print off pictures of your kids or your family, put them in your wallet. I said, even if you don't have a family, print (laughs) off pictures from the internet, a dog or whatever, right? And put them in your wallet and just share stories. I said, because the faster you can make a human connection with them and get them to like you, the more intel we'll get and the less likely we are to actually get shot. Mm. And so literally within... You know, a day of doing this, one of my soldiers comes running back. Goes, Woodenberg, Woodenberg. Hey, I got a, uh, I've got a, uh, I've got it. Some intel. I said, you know, uh, okay, what, what? Slow, calm down. He's like, we're not supposed to go down Rot Rat. Okay, why? I don't know. Guy just told me. He's like, don't go down Rot Rat. I'm like, okay, so give me the background. He's like, well, okay. So I was smoking with them and I was talking to him about family and was talking about, you know, growing up and what we wanted to do. And he just leans over and goes, don't go down route rat. <laughs> and it's like, okay, what? Don't, don't go down route rat. Okay. Like, and so that's, so, so we pull up the maps, we look at it. We're like, okay, there's only a quarter mile of our drive that we're going to be on route rat. So what's this telling us? So I call up EOD and I give them some Intel that along this, you know, quarter mile stretch that there's probably an IED. They go cruising down that and they find three IEDs on that route, 
right? Wow. In that quarter mile that we would have we would have transitioned. And so it's not like this, it wasn't necessarily that they were going to actively give us the intel, right. but it's like they start getting that personal connection. They're like, man, I like this guy. Like, I don't want to see him die. So don't, don't go down route rat. <laughs> right. That's awesome. And, and so, yeah, building that, that, that sense of, of humanity is, is critical. That's actually really brilliant too, because I smoked many years ago, um, quit in 2005, but I will tell you here in the States, um, there's a definite divide between smokers and non-smokers. And I almost call smokers an ethnic group or a, a group who feels that way. And they do bond very, very heavily because oh, a- absolutely, they're standing outside in the cold or the rain or whatever. They're sort of ostracized from the people around them. So while the Iraqi culture may be more open with smoking, et cetera, there is a real bond in in smoking going to think all the way back to peace pipes and, and things like that with uh, aboriginals. A- absolutely. And, um, you know, I've, I used to, I used to laugh when, uh, when I was working at Honeywell, I was a, a project manager, a program manager and, um, in, in research and development. And if I ever wanted to get good red lines on my, on my documents or my prints or anything, I'd print them off and I'd take them down to the, uh, to the smoking area outside because it's Arizona. It's beautiful out. And we'd lay them out on the table and I'd put a couple packs of cigarettes to hold down the edges and let them go to town. And <laughs> you would get some of the best edits and engineering insight and coaching and philosophy and everything else over a cigarette than you ever did anywhere else. It was, it's, it is, it's a very unique and different culture. Um, but one that really breaks down those barriers, like uh, going back to the, to active duty. Um, if you ever want to get the pulse of the unit, go down to the smoking pit where all the Joes are mm-hmm. and, uh, and light up and just sit there and, and listen to them because it's really awkward if you're not smoking. But the second you light up, everyone goes, Oh, and they start talking about everything. You're like, Oh, so-and-so sleeping with so-and-so. Oh, they didn't mm-hmm. like this order. Oh, you know, they think this is bullshit. So I can, you know, you start getting the pulse of the unit in a lot clearer way just by, kind of being one with them. Yeah. And they tend to be open, but there's an honor. It, I guess it's its own honor culture, but they're not going to reveal much outside of what they talk about to each other. That's part of the reason you get such a pulse. Oh, absolutely. There's, there is a level of confidentiality at those places where, you know, these are my, these are almost, it's not, it's like, these are my, these are my bros or, you know, whatever that, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it is. It's it's totally different. And I, I don't think smokers actually understand in any way, shape or form that sort of uh, they look at it and go, oh, that's disgusting. And I look at it and go, oh, my God, some of the best conversations I've had, some of the, the best life lessons I've ever had have been, you know, hanging out in that group. Speaking of um, things that are bad for us, but we still enjoy. I was supposed to do this with you a few days ago, and I'm disappointed because that was going to be in the evening. And I was going to have an IPA and imagine that you would have a beer too, because you have a very important hobby for improving the world. I'd love to discuss. Oh, it's actually, uh, I built my house around my hobby. <laughs> so I, uh, I do, I brew my own beer. Uh, I brew a Hero. batch and a, a batch is about five gallons. Uh, so I brew about, about a batch a month. So I've been doing it since January of 2011 and I think I just cracked 95 beers, so I'm a little over 
over schedule. Um, but I, when I laugh, I built my house around it because I literally built my house around a kegerator. I have a wine fridge in the wall above it. So right next to the refrigerator is a, uh, is five beer taps. And then that goes through the wall to a special closet behind it that holds my, my kegerator. And then above it is all my whiskey. But yeah, I, I brew beer. I've got, uh, you mentioned IPAs. Uh, IPAs are one of my favorites. Um, I think hipsters have done a great disservice to IPAs, but that doesn't mean mm-hmm. that there aren't really good ones out there. Uh, so the, uh, I'm laughing because it's, it's all the nuance of, of, of how you make a beer. So simple story of why hipsters ruin beer is because just adding hops to something doesn't make it taste better. Right. Um, so a good IPA is a balance of both the malts, the grain bill and the hops. Mm-hmm. So when you hear like, I have a double session IPA, well, a session is a low alcohol content beer. So that means it has, yeah, it means that you have to have low alcohol. You have to have low sugar to have low sugar. You have low, low grain. So if you have low grain, you have low malt. So then to have a, I mean, even like a session IPA is a bit of a misnomer because it means your malt to, to, to hops bill is out of balance. But a double session IPA basically means you might as well just pour it down the drain because it's no better than Bud Light. I have a question so, on that, since you're deep into it and I know you had to read the history. Is the story true that IPA, a.k.a. India Pale Ale, uh, came about because the amount of time it took to ship the beer from Britain to India or Great Britain to India was so long that they needed the extra hops to keep it fresh and taste okay at the end when it got there? Yeah, and same goes for what we call an imperial pale ale, which basically was went overland into Russia and into the uh, and through that area. So hops is naturally antimicrobial, and it uh, so it basically is a preservative for your beer, amongst other amazing things like the flavor and aroma that you get with it. So hops was a was a good way to keep the beer lasting longer. Um, because another interesting historical aside is, you know, oh, I'll ask you this one. When do you think uh, beer was carbonated? Oh, God, with the Egyptians? Carbonated beer? Yeah, I, I don't know. No, because you couldn't, uh, casks, you'd never want to pressurize a cask to that degree, and you didn't okay. have good canning or sealing. So pressurization is really from like the early 1900s when you were actually able to get it into bottles that wouldn't shatter. Hmm, okay. And things like that. So your beer was mostly drank warm and flat. Ah, okay. And so it would be in these big casks. So you needed to have some other sort of preservative other than the alcohol to keep it from uh, from skunking. And hmm. so hops was that. So yeah, they would hop up the beer to send it around the Horn of Africa or overland, which made it an imperial pale ale. Cool. And when did they switch? I mean, um in the English culture, Scottish, et cetera, weren't they more into mead for a long time versus beer? And when did that transition happen? Uh, now you're getting a little, um, well, with, sorry, there's so many different angles on this one. So beer as we know it is not beer as, as it used to be. Um, one, it's carbonated. Two, we drink it cold. Three, it's got like a lager. Um, lager yeast is actually from Patagonia, Argentina where the casks of beer that they would send over from Germany, they would drink it in Argentina, send the casks back. It would have picked up the Patagonia yeast strain, which is a cold, uh, 
cold fermenting strain. And then when they would put the beer in the casks to ferment, it would actually pick up that new strain and you actually got a lager out of it. But that's after 1492. Most of your beers were actually, well, if you look at what's called a group, they would use a, um, they would use bittering herbs like heather and fennel and some other things like that as bittering herbs um, to do the same sort of a thing. But those ended up being more sours, which a lot of your farmhouse ales in Belgium are, are sours. And so a lot of what we know about or what we think about what a beer is is not what a beer would have been. So it kind of gets a mixy bag on what they were actually drinking when, if that makes, if, the, if sure. they're checking on that. Um, what got you into the hobby? My wife bought me a beer kit. So we had friends who did it. My wife bought me a beer kit in 2011, and then it didn't stop from there. So hmm. um, I do a lot of wheeling and dealing on Craigslist. So I have probably over $5,000 worth of brewing equipment that I've wow. made money buying. So hmm. I've actually recouped all my costs by basically buying, upgrading, buying low, but buying low, selling high. Okay. Um, it's done better than my stock market, my stock portfolio, I think. <laughs> But uh, I, I I only mentioned the price because I've literally paid nothing for it in the in the end, so it's it's kind of a a good deal. Yeah, it is. Um, but yeah, I brew. The interesting thing is, uh, you had asked a little bit about beer, uh, so I'll ask you another question. Do you know the four primary ingredients of beer? I'm guessing uh, grain, malt. Uh, well, barley is a grain. Um, yeah. So it'd be a grain, a malt, a sugar, and a yeast. That's my get, uh, hops. Okay, so you've got you got the grain, the the so grain, malt, sugar are all going to be then the same. It's just going to be your grain. Okay. Grain, hops, yeast, and now you're missing water. one crucial ingredient: water. water. Yep, water. So so all beers fundamentally are just grain, yeast, hops, and water. And so what's fascinating is there's a series of books on each of those four ingredients. Because uh, I'll ask you this one. Why is Ireland known for stouts and the Czech Republic known for pilsners? I, I would have no idea. Oh, pH I, of water. Ah, okay. Because you need 5.2 pH to convert, to do the enzymatic action, to convert the, the starches in your grain into, into sugar, the simple sugar, so you can ferment them. And mm. so that's... Uh, that's when you get into your mashing during your all grain processes. You take these 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 this malted barley and then you convert the starches into sugar. And so Czech Republic has very low pH water, and mm. so they can't use dark roasted grains because that drops the pH too low. It makes it too acidic, and you don't get the the conversion. So they have to use really light grain in order to get it to five point two. Do they use a lot on of the wheat? others? Um, it's not necessarily, I mean, it doesn't really matter what, what you use. You, you could, you, you could have dark roasted wheat and you're going to have the same pH drop because mm -hmm. of the, uh, because of the roasting. Um, and then Ireland is known for highly alkaline water. And so if you use really light grain, lightly roasted grain in your, in your Irish water, you'd never get it down to 5.2. It'd be too basic. And you would, uh, you'd never convert to sugar. So they have to use dark roasted grains to actually drop the pH far enough to get it into, uh, to convert to sugars, which is why you end up getting stouts. Well, that's cool. Now, do you bottle yours or do you just kegerate them? I just keg them. 
Um, okay. I, I stopped bottling after I think my third batch. I bought a kegerator because I said, screw that. Bottling sucks. Bottling's a pain in the butt. <laughs> I helped uh, a friend of ours out and he, you know, brewed his own beer and you did the bottling. I helped him mm-hmm. bottle and I was like, okay, this is a hobby I will not continue or take up. <laughs> it left that kind of impression on me. Oh my God. So two things that are, that are really nice is uh, conical fermenters and kegging. So conical fermenters, just as it sounds, it's instead of being just a flat bottom container, it's cone shaped. And so you have these catchments at the bottom. And so after primary, you just close the valve and screw the bottom, pour out the, the trub, screw that back in, open it back up, let it go into secondary. And then when you're done, you close off the valve, unscrew the trub, toss out the rest of it, and then you screw in a hose and then you put the hose into your keg and then you open the valve and it pours in and you clean it all up and you're done. It's the easiest thing in the world. You know what, for this episode and show notes, could I ask a task of you? What's that? Can you put together a DIY dummy level, here's how to build a brewing kit that's affordable and can get you, let's say, 64 ounces of beer at a pop or whatever? Oh, you want me to go all the way down? Um, yeah, I could do something. I would, so some of your smaller it. ones, yeah, they actually, there's, there's, yeah, I'll, I'll put something together because there's a lot of great resources out there online, especially like uh, Midwest Supplies is a great one um, yeah, for, for all these sorts of kits and things like that. But so interesting aside, we think of Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch as being, you know, crappy beer from our bourgeois perspective. But uh, Anheuser-Busch is actually the largest microbrewery in the world uh, because they bought so many, mm-hmm. many microbreweries. They bought, uh, I believe they bought Widmere years ago. But what's interesting is there's uh, there's Midwest Supplies and Northern Brewer, which quite a few years ago, they merged their online operations. And so they're actually basically the same company. And then just a couple of years ago, Anheuser-Busch bought them. Mm. And so now Anheuser-Busch is actually the largest um, craft brew, homebrew uh, supplier in the world as well. I'm not surprised, but there, there's yeah. a great Netflix thing. I hope it's still there, Beer Wars. Yep. From several years back. And and Anheuser-Busch plays dirty, too. Like, um, Oh, yeah. If you go next to a flying dog who makes uh, my favorite IPA, Raging Bitch, yep. you'll see that there's a blueberry brew yep. with the artwork. And I think they commissioned the same artist. Uh, side note, that artist did the artwork for Hunter S. Thompson books. Okay. Um, so, uh, was it Wild Blue Ale or something like that? It is not flying dog it is anheuser-busch and it is the most foul beer i've ever tasted i did something that to me is a sin normally i took a sip and wanted to gag but because the beer is sacred i took another one and said never mind i dumped the whole bottle out in the sink and that that is unheard of for me that's how bad it was yeah that's that's, uh, I'll have to keep my eye open on that one. Um, every once in a while, I'll buy beer off the shelf, um, but mostly I just keep my liver pickled with my own. Well, yeah, I'm sure. It's got to be nice. Works but pretty well. Try, try Raging Bitch and see if you can duplicate it. Yeah, it's, I'll have to do that. I, I like going Belgian. to the brew pubs around here. Um, I found one of my favorite things at the brew pubs is the flights of beer that they offer now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I'll try like you know 12 different beers instead of three. So I like that a lot. Yeah, flights are awesome. We have a brewery that is 
like seven houses and a hotel down from my house. I mean, it's literally yeah. on the same street. Yep. So I need to go there more. I went there with Isaiah, who does the sound engineering on this podcast. Yep. Yeah, Isaiah. Just before he came to you, he was uh, at my own personal brewery, so he's got a uh, he's got a good good balance going on. <laughs> Smart so, hey, guy. I- I wanted to swing back to something. We kind of jumped off of the from you know time in the army in Korea and and getting married. So yeah, my wife and I actually got married in Korea on the base and then at the embassy, mm-hmm. and so uh, it was it was kind of fantastic. But the the life the life and times of early marriage in the army was funny because we literally got married, mm-hmm. had our honeymoon in Seoul, and then Lisa went back to college. I went through the Ranger orientation program for selection to the Ranger Regiment. Mm-hmm. And then came back to Korea, didn't get selected, or the selection didn't come through at the time, uh, went into the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, which is the unit I deployed with, mm-hmm. did training there. So we had like, I'd say in the first three years of marriage, I had seen my wife less than six months and none of them longer than about three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so deployed with 3rd ACR. At the same time, I had gotten selected to go to the Rangers, but my unit failed to release me, so I ended up going downrange. Came back and decided, I'd, I, I say, I got tired of getting shot at, so decided to get out into the civilian world. Mm-hmm. And so I did two years in the National Guard working with the with an Apache unit, being their fire support officer, which was fantastic work there, too. And then that's when I joined Honeywell. And then Hello. from Honeywell... Oh, hey, little one. <laughs> got my uh, oldest daughter here, Juliet. Hey, Julia, you want to say hi? You don't want to say hi? Okay. Um, anyway, so, and then from Honeywell, I went to, uh, I did four years there, both production management, and then went to, uh, went into program management, and then came over to Raytheon, where I've been doing basically process improvement and aspects like that. So, kind of wanted to wrap that back around, because you had some questions at the beginning of the interview kind of asking about my work and what I did sure. at Raytheon. So I wanted to see if you had any follow-ups to that. Yeah. Well, I have a follow-up on um, your separation. Okay. How, how was that when, you know, you established a relationship that was kind of a, a distance relationship and had very little time together, which would make the time together precious. Right. Did you have to overcome anything when all of a sudden, Oh, Hey, we're full time now all the time and see each other. Or was that a very comfortable thing? And actually, because we talked so much, um, like every night for like an hour, hour and a half sort of thing. Um, you know, when we came back, Lisa was working. And so, you know, so I'd see her in the morning for a little bit and then see her in the evening and then we'd be hanging out with friends and stuff like that. So it wasn't that it's not like, you know, I think being retired <laughs> would probably be more of a, a shocking transition hmm. because you're around each other, you know, 24 seven at that point in time. Okay. Um, we had and jobs. So, no, yeah, we had jo- we had our different jobs, and so it was uh, it wasn't a, a, a terribly different. It was just nice to actually be in physical proximity. Well, cool. And what I understand, you're working on a degree right now, correct? Yep, I'm going for my master's in systems engineering from Johns Hopkins. So that's a lightweight degree. It's, it's shouldn't take much fun. time. <laughs> no. It's, so it's actually a good program. So it's actually a partnership between my company and Johns Hopkins. So I don't have to do anything online. The instructors actually come out here. It's a combination of my company's instructors plus the, the Johns Hopkins instructors. And so they come together and that we actually have lectures every Friday. So I was able to adjust my schedule to work four tens 
Uh, so four days a week, 10 hours a day. And then I take grad school class on, on Fridays and then do the, all the homework and everything else when I have spare time. Right. <laughs> so where are you headed to next? Yeah. Everyone wants to know what your five-year, you know, growth plan is. And, uh, I don't, because I always look back, where was I five years ago and what did I think I was going to do? Mm-hmm. At no point in time, five years ago, and am I doing what I thought I was going to do five years ago? Mm-hmm. So I have ideas for what I want to do. Um, I like the job I'm in. I have a, I have a team, um, about nine people. I laugh because I have, I'm in engineering and I have an insanely diverse team. Um, I have both a Jesus and a Muhammad on my team. Cool. And I've got over 50% in engineering females of them. Only one of them is actually white. Um, I've got, it's, it's, I'm, it's, it's interesting. I've got a Nigerian, a Chinese, an Afghani, uh, Hispanic, uh, Jamaican, a, uh, I will be getting a full, full on Navajo. I have, so it's, it's really fascinating. And so I am, it's not saying, you know, that's not trying to, to brag about it. It's just, it's also insanely complicated mm-hmm. because you've got so many different people from so many different walks of life. Um, I tell them all the time, I said, unspoken expectations are guaranteed to be violated mm-hmm. because can you expect any of us are going to have the same background or the same social expectations or the same political f- affiliations or anything like that? And the answer is no. And so, you know, when someone comes up like, oh, I, I can't believe, you know, I'm, I'm not getting along with this or I'm upset by this person, what they're doing. I said, have you told them? Well, mm-hmm. no. Okay. I that number one, go and tell them. Um, that reminds me of um, Adam Hansen again, to bring him up. He uh, mm-hmm. knew a guy called Beale, and he has something called Beale's Law, which I yep. think is pretty profound. The idea of spot anyone two character flaws and you get along yep. with everyone. Yep. And that's actually, um, I was listening to that to that episode, and it's definitely true. Um, the catch is whether you agree on which character flaws you're going to spot them or not. Eh, well, if your mindset is there... Yeah, that's already giving a graciousness that yeah. probably and, will move forward. Yeah, and the graciousness is good. The and the conflict. Well, and and this is what's interesting about the concept of diversity is diversity by definition is going to be get conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to have conflict, and people want to avoid conflict. And the point isn't the point isn't. You know, I think the the the, the biggest benefit of spotting two character flaws is when you get to know somebody. You're like, okay, you're a human. You're going to have different perspectives. I might not agree with it, but I can understand that you have this, you know, idea, you know, this, this view on life and I can work with that. I don't have to accept it. I don't have to, I don't have to empower it even. I just have to be able to accept it. And so, and work with it a little bit. So this is a uh, third one, Ed, Edmund Barrel. Looks like he's so, getting heavy. Yeah. <laughs> they don't stop growing. So yeah, spotting two character flaws is actually a great idea. I thought that was a, a really good insight from, uh, from Adam on that one as well. So um, something I'm definitely going to bring into my, into my team and, and discuss because I think it has, because one of the things, like I said, unspoken expectations are guaranteed to be violated. We also talk about a lot. Like you and I met during the, in the mixed metal arts forum. Mm-hmm. And something that mixed mental arts talks about is called cultural confessions. Mm-hmm. And I heard that and I thought that was a phenomenal idea. So we actually do cultural confessions um, 
whenever we kind of feel the need to at work. And so I'll typically start it off. I'll have like a team meeting. I'll start it off and I'll say, okay, you know, here's who I am. Here's, you know, what I like, here's, you know, what, what, what drives me as a, as a, as a human and as a, as a, as you, as a manager. And a lot of people at first it's kind of like nervous giggling, like Mm -hmm. how much do you talk about? But then they find it fascinating to be able to actually have these conversations about who they are. Mm. Like, and, and then asking the questions, like one of my, one of the people who actually, we did a cultural confession, actually ad hoc, just in the people who sit around us. One of the guys was like, yeah, my, my parents came over illegally from Mexico. I said, mm-hmm. okay, so how does that cause you to react? Like he wasn't a dreamer. He was actually born. Well, I guess he was legally born here. Yeah. There's so he's an American citizen. So it's poorly. I don't quite get them all. Yeah. Dreamer is somebody who wasn't born here, but was brought at a very young age. But anyway, um, so I said, so how does that affect how you view this immigration debate that's going on? And it was funny because like almost everybody around kind of goes <gasps> and steps back like, uh oh. And he's like, well, you know, here's my view on it. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, well, that's different than what any one of us would have assumed, given that your parents came here, you know, undocumented illegally, however you want to say it. He had a different view on the topic. Right. Right. And uh, but it was fantastic because other people were like, I never would have asked that. Like, I can't believe you asked that. And it's like it was actually the the guy came up to me later. He's like, you know, I'm glad you asked that because most people don't know how to even have the conversation with me. And so they just leave me out of the conversation. Right. Right. That makes sense. And does it help when you do your own um, cultural confession or whatever that they can draw parallels yeah. like, oh, well, the way I was raised or in my culture, the way we did such and such. um does it help you by leading off that way that they can kind of counter with whatever happens in their culture or maybe get a bonding through it? Yeah. And that's, that's the whole point is I'm going to be honest about my proclivities because I want you to be honest about yours because I, I value directness. Like my unspoken expectation is that you're going to be direct with me. Like, just don't, don't be like, you know, that, what they call it the bullshit sandwich where it's like, tell me something good. Tell me something you want to improve. Tell me something good. I, mm-hmm. I can see that coming a mile away. I'm like, okay, what's the point? Right. And so, um, but some people really appreciate that. So if I know how you want to be a, communicated with, and it's that meeting in the middle, it's knowing that I'm not going to give up my directness. I'm still going to be direct, but I'm going to couch it a little differently. And then mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you to stretch out of your comfort zone and be a little bit more direct with me. Right. Mm-hmm. Like um, subtle hints, right? Like subtle feedback, subtle feedback, I think is absolutely horrific because it, it really implies that the other person is going to get it. Right. So <laughs> you have a cheerleader behind you. I have a cheerleader. He's just playing. He's the happiest little guy. That's awesome. You having fun, Edmund? So are you guys going to go grab some eggs on this Easter morning? We have, uh, they had their Easter baskets this morning, kind of kept the kids distracted for a little bit while we had the, uh, the conversation. Um, but, uh, I think we did a Easter egg hunt a few, uh, like last week. There's only so much candy I can allow these little monsters to have. Oh, very cool. Um, you're a pretty solid participant in Unstructured. I talked to, uh, Ginny Aguilar, who also participates quite a bit. What mm-hmm. do you think about, um, the Facebook group? Uh, unstructured p it's under that and what's going on in there and what do you like about it what do you see can be improved or what i like is the fact that it's unstructured 
Uh, there's not a dogma or a right answer or a, I find it to be a very safe place to post things. Like I will actually, because you and I cross a few different forums, you might notice that I might test out a, a topic in unstructured mm-hmm. and kind of see, kind of help me refine it because I put it out there not to, I put it out there to get darts thrown at it. Um, there was a great insight, you know, a little, another aside the, the scientific method always kind of gets talked like you have a hypothesis and you test your hypothesis. Right. Mm -hmm. And, but that's a misnomer because we often test to prove our hypotheses. And so in statistics, going through my master's program, um, we revisited statistics again. And it was so, it was difficult because you have what's called the null hypothesis and you never accept the null hypothesis. You only, fail to reject or reject your null hypothesis. So all your testing is done in order to disprove your hypothesis. And only when you fail to disprove your hypothesis, do you actually use it? Mm -hmm. And so I I use that as an aside because what I like doing in these groups is putting things out there and letting them be disproven because that helps me refine refine my ideas. So then I'll take what we refine and I'll, you know, depending on how it flows, I'll use that and I might post that in a different forum, kind of knowing how to how to couch it better or communicate it better so that um it can it can be open to a little broader and more diverse audience and get picked on as equally for uh to disprove it. Cool. And null, I can tell you from programming, is an absolute nightmare. Just explaining yeah, right. null. Yeah, right. What is null? Is it nothing? No, it's a null. Is it zero? No, it's a null. So you mean it's a blank? No, it's a null. Uh, what? I mean, it, it is like the black hole in logic and is so hard to get your head around. Yeah, and then failing to accept it even. Well, I guess in, the, in that sense, if you can't get your head around it, can you ever accept the null hypothesis? <sighs> I don't know. It depends. Yeah, right. That's a whole different <laughs> conversation. Hey, on that note, I think it's a good point to wrap up, and I hope you keep posting in Unstructured and keep um, contributing and I'm not going to say arguing, but um, chatting with everyone because I consider it sort of a pub. Right. And but is there any social contacts for you? Or? For me? Um, typically not. I don't have a, a media presence too much. Um, I mean, eventually maybe you and I – we're kind of collaborating on kind of writing a book down on some of these ideas, but that's tabled that one kind of get my brain in order on it. But eventually maybe we'll be back on talking about that. So, I mean, you'll find me in unstructured Michael Woodenberg. Um, I'm not shy. <laughs> I like direct com- conversations. I, I, I like salacious topics. Um, I like gr- grokking. I, I love that term. I like to grok complex topics and try to, you know, decompose them and understand them and put them back together and play with them. It's kind of my systems perspective is step it in, step it out, put it into context, break it down, see if I can compose it into something else, build it back out, see what the inner relationships are. And so, you know, there's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of conversations I like to do that in. So I'm there and uh, you can engage me on, on unstructured. Fantastic. And thank you so much for coming on here. No problem. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Hey everyone, Eric here. I want to thank you again so much for listening. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you taking some. If you like what you hear, please spread the word. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Unstructured P, as in podcast. 
Also, you can review the podcast in whichever app you use. It really helps a bunch to spread the word. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.